now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Dose of Ether. I am your co-host, Bijan, and I'm with Lucian. Hey, Lucian. Hey, Bijan. Nice talking to you again. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for today's discussion. We're going to talk about, um, you know, giving clarity on the, the Ethereum valuation debate. This has been really heated, but I think we got a lot of really good news today or this week. Um, and also talking about Web 3.0, how that is coming together. Coinbase had an incredible article around that. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about the giving clarity around the roadmap of Ethereum. I think Vitalik has shown us a lot of really cool new information that brings everything together. So let's let's get started. Uh, how are things going uh, with you over there, Lucian? Give us give us the thirty second update of, of uh, your progress. You still haven't gone to ETH Berlin, I hear. No, not yet. It's this weekend. I'm uh, heading over Friday, and uh, I feel like a lot of the uh, technical news and releases are um, kind of slowing down from the main Ethereum projects, basically waiting to release their updates either at uh, DevCon in Prague or hopefully something exciting this weekend, too. Um, But yeah, for the most part, I'm excited. I can't wait to be in Germany. And uh, it'll be soon. It's going to be a long and tiring trip since I chose to uh, try to sleep on the airplane instead of uh, wasting a day of travel. So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're here with us. You've got a ton of energy, I'm sure. And and we're going to give the audience hopefully a good show. So let's get into it. So, you know, the first thing we wanted to talk about was uh, Vitalik gave a really great overview about how he actually expects layer one development at the protocol layer for Ethereum to slow down in the long term, but to be really chaotic in the short term. Um, What are your initial kind of impressions on that? Um, Vitalik basically um, started in the Bitcoin community a while back, and I feel like people are always asking what he thinks because he's viewed as um, the, a vocal leader of Ethereum and uh, a thought leader especially. So when there's divisive issues around technical topics, they always want him to join sides. Um, mm. This is probably because of the outgrowth of the Bitcoin debate. And the Bitcoin debate was essentially, do we implement SegWit, segregated witness, or uh, do we increase the block size in the short term? which ironically weren't necessarily mutually exclusive, except the community really split. And um, I feel like this uh, recent article was basically a response of having him not want to change sides and basically showing his openness to exploring both um, possible directions of development. Interestingly, you know, with Vitalik, he is so active in governance you know he 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 definitely tries to make clear that he doesn't have any decision making power directly but his influence is so great and he's aware of that but what what's interesting is he's kind of conceding that in the short term 
he he needs to be kind of an activist when it comes to governing the Ethereum platform and making sure that it can reach the the scalability it needs to and the security that it needs to to be a long-term sustainably competitive compute platform. And um, his view is that this chaotic and experimental period is is actually by design. And once once the layer one technology gets to a point that it can support, you know, trillions of transactions and and hundreds of thousands of app distributed applications, um, that naturally the movement will will go toward development on layer two and beyond technologies. It's just it, it, it makes a lot of sense because in, when the platform is worth hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars, people aren't going to want the uncertainty of change. Are you reducing the block reward? Are you adding proof of stake, EWASM? All this stuff is very, very risky, you know, and that's why Bitcoin has taken such a slow and calculated approach because governance is really hard to do right. And there are so many incentives to to harm or distract or move things away from their from their end user goal and so in the short term when when the platform is relatively unusable or not widespread it makes sense to be to be changing it or to be more with willing to change it um but 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 what he also goes into is that he wants to abstract away any application specific functionality so and, and and so it seems like he's actually drawing a line in the sand with what Ethereum is and what Ethereum isn't. As a generalized disp uh, compute platform, he's not trying to get into the game, the arms race of ZK Snarks and, and other new you know iterations of things that some people may use, but others won't. So do you have any thoughts on, on that kind of high-level overview? So... Basically, the layer one uh, solutions come down to the fact that a blockchain is a single data structure that um, is linked to the previous iterations. And this specific data structure uh, grows linearly. And the more you try to fit into it, the harder it is for the rest of uh, the computing network to actually be able to keep up. So the question then becomes, how do we actually create this structure that creates the unifying single source of truth that we recognize as blockchain? And um, the Bitcoin community basically says like, okay, this is it. And the Ethereum community says, well, um, we are open to trying things like changing the consensus mechanism and um, changing the way the core data structure is actually distributed through sharding, which is basically breaking up the core data structure into uh, pieces and um, allowing for more to fit within that same data structure because you don't need to hold all of the information to be able to interact with the network. Mm -hmm. And this is core level one um, changes that can and should be made. And um, the fact that Bitcoin essentially isn't even considering these changes is um, basically eliminating uh, some possible directions of research and future development, which doesn't really work. And it kind of goes against the ethos of the Ethereum community as a whole. Um, I like the fact that they're trying and I like the fact that they're willing to um, 
experiment with different things like different consensus mechanisms. And um, in the end, if ZK snarks end up being the most efficient way to actually store data on this primary layer, I think eventually it would be adopted as well. And uh, I remember uh, within this article, Vitalik was basically saying that um, the Zcash community actually changed uh, a key component in the way they stored data on the blockchain. Um, and he basically is saying that it would be nice to be able to experiment with all of these, but um, in the end, it's better basically to make a more general purpose first layer so that the second layer can experiment with things like uh, implementing a Zcash chain as a layer two solution that um, connects to the core Ethereum layer one solution. And it makes sense, right? Because you don't want all of the Ethereum protocol devs to be focused on niche technologies for maybe a subset of, of the ecosystem, because then they have to constantly be in, in a race to catch up with those new developments. So let the applications develop the technologies in, in layer two that they wish and keep the, the, the layer one protocol really, really secure. And that's what's different between Vitalik's approach and, you know, the more um, adventurous blockchains like, like EOS, um, where, where he's saying, listen, we want the most secure, long-term, minimal governance, minimal activism blockchain, but also one that achieves the scalability requirements to be competitive. Bitcoin is, is saying, we don't care about, uh, about short-term competitiveness. We're going to focus on the most secure blockchain and the best, most stable ecosystem for people to develop on. If Bitcoin does become the global store of value, then all may, perhaps all the development resources will go there and they'll be able to achieve a lot of what Ethereum has achieved just on, on layer two and beyond. You know? So it's hard to see. I think they're all very interesting strategies and we'll see which one plays out. Um, but, so a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of layer two solutions um, essentially depend on being able to be built off of the core layer, and um, as we're going to get into a little bit later on, you'll notice that actually a lot of the uh, additional development has actually been enabled by the way the core layer one uh, structure of Ethereum was thought out. The idea of having a Turing complete um, smart contract language is actually an enabling feature that allows for easier development of more complicated solutions and alternatives. So right. it's true that eventually everything can be built on top of Bitcoin, but a while back, Bitcoin transaction fees made it completely unreasonable. But in the future, I think the Bitcoin scripting language is actually going to be a much bigger limiting factor in what you can do with it simply because of the fact that it hasn't been built and it hasn't been changed in such a way that it would be easier, more accessible for uh, further developments. And as a result, you actually end up seeing less layer two solutions that have been uh, implemented in over a much longer time period. So while they kept the stability of the original core design with some very small and hard to accept by its communities changes um, the actual unwillingness to um, change the core layer um, has basically made it more um, 
mature and stable, yet at the same time, more difficult to actually uh, move with the advances of cryptography. So, and, and that's true, but yeah. I, you know, but if if we look at you know a hundred year vision, then then it's it's possible that eighty percent of the value of blockchain is captured in things that are able to be settled on Bitcoin. You know, maybe maybe the entire ecosystem lives in you know state channels and and um, the Lightning Network and. Uh, and, you know, side chains with different consensus mechanisms that all settle to Bitcoin. Maybe that's 80% of the value and the other 20% is these more novel compute requirements that, that perhaps a Turing complete language uh, system is, is required for. I'm just a product guy. I'm not a technical dude, so you, I, I'll, I'll, I'll let you win this one. But let's move on to uh, the fact in, that... Uh, it, it, in support it, yeah. of that idea, uh -huh. in support of that idea, actually... Um, the first time that I really thought that that would be a possibility was uh, after I saw the first implementation of Plasma Cache. So basically the core uh, implementation difference between Ethereum and uh, Bitcoin, in my personal opinion, is uh, the UTXO model versus the account-based model. Mm -hmm. Basically how you uh, create transactions and how you basically manage um, information regarding which account or which um, Bitcoin address has uh, the respective funds in it. And um, it was actually a pretty big divergence for Ethereum. And this is one of the main reasons that they're not easily cross compatible is because of this core difference. And uh, what ends up happening is that the UTXO model was actually used by Plasma Cash. Mm. Uh, because it's more efficient to prove um, that you own funds using a UTXO model. It's just more computationally efficient. You basically uh, are able to um, compute this and you're able to take the UTXO model and um, have it settle onto the Ethereum blockchain. And that's basically what Plasma Cache is. That's basically what the Loom Network implemented. Right. Um, yeah, so and, when and I it, first it, heard that, yeah, yeah when it, I first heard that, I was thinking that the UTXO model has a clear advantage. Um, it, it, it's something that remains to be seen how it'll all play out. And this is my my gripe is that everybody and their mother thinks that they know exactly what the future will hold for blockchain, and I just call bullshit on all of that because it this is this is just getting started. It's so uncertain. And, and it's yep. demonstrated yep. so clearly with the valuation debate, right? Everyone's calling for Ethereum to, to for its inevitable downfall. TechCrunch has, has called it out. I mean, it's, this is, argument has been going on for a year. Chris Bernisk, you know, if I'm saying that right, he mentioned that Ethereum was probably 100 times overvalued when it was at $400. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the velocity problem with, with valuing token economies is really... A, a problem, but you know, I was I actually was trying to get into an argument with uh, the author of the Bitcoin Standard about this because he's so adamant that everything but Bitcoin is going to zero, and I'm just thinking here, you know, it took 300 years for us to, to develop, you know, discounted cash flow and medium of exchange formulas for valuing monetary supply in public companies, and this guy, uh, you know, nine years into Bitcoin, thinks that he's solved it and figured it out with his brand new asset class, how it's going to play out. 
So yeah, if, and with an old economic theory that hasn't actually been really put into practice and has never gone mainstream. Yeah, and it's, so not, the, it's not to say that the old economic theories aren't right. I'm just saying that this is sufficiently different enough that we have to give it some deeper consideration. Don't just run off and and you know it's, it's yeah. it, to me it's just another layer. It's more sophisticated fud. It's it's more sophisticated people, smarter people, just spreading fun so i guess we'll see i'm not really worried about it but vitalik responded to that TechCrunch article um what what did what do you read from this whole thing so um first the person who wrote the article jeremy rubin is a advisor to stellar which is essentially a fork off of um ripple of the early developer and basically a re-implementation just with a different uh with a different team and a different funding structure and he's a bitcoin core contributor and i mean when you make a prediction about the future about financial future um, the only way that i give that any value is whether or not they actually put their money where their mouth is and i would happily take a bet that ethereum will not go to zero <laughs> And I would happily take this bet any day. Um, you probably are taking I this think, bet by by holding some coin. Um, actually, it, not exactly, because there's no real way that I know that I could actually uh, make this bet unless I have a counterparty. Um, I'm happy to... Uh, speak with Jeremy Rubin and see how we could actually make a uh, options contract that says that up until a specific certain date, if the price of Ethereum is not zero, then okay, he well, pays you, you, you heard difference. You heard the so, men. You heard Lucian, Mr. Yeah, Rubin, come a, out. We've challenged you. Theory of, uh, yeah. Sponsored this by Augur. This is the theory of skin in the game. This is the theory of skin in the game. So if he has no active development interest within the community and in fact uh, instead sees that his work in developing Stellar and Bitcoin Core is in direct competition with the value of Ethereum, um, I personally don't see it this way. It's just that when someone makes a prediction like this about the future, either you put money on your bet or it doesn't matter well but, actually what's um, interesting the, here is that you know the you actually got to the core of it in in the beginning is that who is this guy right and he's clearly got a conflict of interest his, interest his skin is in the game of bitcoin and stellar and i'd be interested and he has know. nothing to lose he has nothing to lose well he has everything uh, to lose if, if ethereum but he has plenty to gain if it and, wins, yeah. <laughs> then he's yes, and I don't, I don't personally believe in the one chain policy, mainly because it's a data structure that in the end is going to combine to a single data structure. And the idea that we're eventually get going to reach a point in which we could find um, optimizations to what we're already doing that is able to combine every transaction in the world on one single source of truth is um unlikely and in my opinion a little bit um a little bit premature to make such a call i actually in think the it's it's, that... it's it's kind of obvious to me in a way i was actually going to argue against you but then as you were talking i realized no because look we have we have paypal credit cards ach venmo we have so many different ways yeah. to pay online now and if you look before the internet 
we also had a lot of ways to pay. We had American Express. We have bank transfers. We, we still have a lot of things. A hundred years yeah. before that, we had maybe one, maybe two ways to transfer value. And, and a thousand years before that, we, we barely had any. And it was one-to-one bartering. So I think every generation, we're finding that we, as we reduce the friction to people moving between different payment channels, that there's going to become more of them because they're going to be more features. I mean, look how many websites there are. It's like the prediction that you know, 64 megabytes of RAM is all you're ever going to need or that there would never be more than a thousand websites on the Internet. I mean, these are these are just very naive uh, statements to make with a high with a high level of conviction. So um, it's kind of silly to me. I think to the meat of the argument, though, um, the, the 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 response that Vitalik made was that, hey, your argument may be true for Ethereum today and, and that Ethereum's value is mostly speculative, speculative, but what is also priced into Ethereum's value is its future. And the roadmap implies that there will be a very, very significant, maybe 80% plus of the um, supply, available supply of Ether locked up in, in the security of the system. That is a non-trivial fact. I mean, if you reduce the supply by 80%, then everybody is fighting over, over Ether. But only if that Ether token is necessary in the, the, the utility, uh, as a utility in the uh, token economy. And what Vitalik is proposing is he's saying, listen, yes, gas is, not, is kind of not really um, something that will accrue value or accrete value to Ether, but in Ethereum 2.0 with Casper and sharding, we're going to start burning ETH directly. We're going to burn a percentage of all transaction fees uh, and charge the block proposer with the with those fees in order to reduce the supply even more. This this tries to combat the velocity problem that everybody calls out the reason, um, um, but as the reason behind Ethereum's inevitable collapse. And so I like this argument that that with token holders investing in, in, in the long term, um, that the Ethereum's value will be propped up by that, despite it having really high, you know, vol, you know, really low necessity to hold otherwise. It's that people want the additional reward, that block reward of, of Ether. So people hold Ether in a proof of stake system in order to either make more Ether um, I mean, the the general argument that was proposed within uh, the TechCrunch article, to me, besides the fact that I don't find the uh, author's motivations very convincing, um, the argument itself is was basically based around the fact that um, the tokens that are built off of Ethereum will somehow negotiate with the um, miners in order basically to pay them directly in their own native token uh, without having the need to convert their ether um, convert into ether from their native token Hmm. which first of all just think about that for a second because currently you can transfer uh, from one token to another without ether through both decentralized exchanges and through um, centralized exchanges, right? But I think the main issue with this idea is the fact that if the price is set independently of having to transfer first into Ether and then 
um, using ether as a gas to basically spend and to burn, um, it's jumping over the fact that ether itself is a utility for providing the core security of the tokens that live on it. Mm-hmm. And in uh, this really harks back to uh, the FAT protocol thesis that we discussed briefly at the end of our show. And his argument is that the applications built on Ethereum are just going to swallow up the entire value and Ether is going to be worthless because the tokens on it are just going to basically assume the entire value of the network. And for me, the obvious contradiction to this is, first of all, people are using the network and the network is providing value, which is why the tokens still continue to operate on the network. And this kind of self-referential thinking has nothing to do with the economics behind his argument, right? The idea that they'll collaborate with miners and they really want to pay with their own tokens and cashing out into Ether is really difficult. Um, None of those arguments from a practical uh, user experience has actually held up. Um, And in fact, there's already solutions uh, to this, which I'm really surprised people haven't really talked about, but they have... uh, this proposed uh, Ethereum gas station in which you can essentially set up um, smart contract transactions that are loaded up with tokens. And these tokens can essentially be converted into ether that you could use into gas on a per use basis. And more complicated like economic structures uh, or more complicated layer two solutions actually already make use of this just under the hood. Um, but again, yeah, I think uh, I think the argument that was originally made wasn't as far-reaching as um, as the title of the article presumed it to be. And I'm still surprised that uh, Ethereum uh, at, that Vitalik responded the way he did, because he did actually concede that hey, under the current model, yes, you might have a point, but that is not what we're going for and it hasn't been what we're building towards. And I actually, yeah, I, I, sense, I, you know, I, I actually, I might go further than Vitalik in a way because I, I think ultimately people are getting too reductionist with this value debate. They're starting with the premise that, you know, things have intrinsic value outside of, you know, outside of humans and their perceptions. But the reality is that Ethereum must have value. If it didn't have value, Ether, if Ether didn't have value, then you couldn't secure the blockchain and the applications on it would be useless. And so right. to the extent that yeah. there are applications and users that rely on Ether, it must have value. And that just means that people, it will have value, that people will hold on to it, they will imbue a value to it. The 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 dynamics of the underlying money are kind of secondary to how strong the 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 um the money is in its in the users lives like if you look at the u.s dollar um it inflates at a certain percentage every year there's a lot of hidden kind of supply and uh, uh, things that people are not really aware of and, and understand but ultimately, it's backed by the confidence of the people that hold it, right? And yeah. um, it is allowed 
to have kind of questionable monetary policy because people still use it and, and it has value. Um, and yeah. so I, and I think it's kind of, of the money printing. <laughs> the U.S. dollar, despite um, all of the money printing that has been going on, has actually raised in relative value compared to Europe. And in the end, value is uh, something that's a social construct. And um, I feel that programmers that I listen to in the blockchain community um, take it as a physical science, not as a social science. And I think they take the interpretation of certain formulas and principles a little too literally when I think economics at its root is actually a philosophy, which is really why I think monetarists um, have never really taken a hold uh, within mainstream economic society. And it's mainly because they're too um, rigid in their interpretation which is why you get like if you really want to hear monetarists it's not just like reading up on the bitcoin standard it's listening to gold bugs people that are certain that the federal reserve is basically destroying the world there's no other option that they're the root cause of every societal problem um but when you really come down to it you realize that there were periods of history that did have a gold back currency and things were not as peachy and as great as people presumed they would be if it was re-implemented today. Um, so yeah, I think uh, the idea of value and economics in general needs to be taken more loosely. And on that site, the entire philosophy of store of value, medium of exchange, the different types of formulations that we've created to actually determine what is the value of these cryptocurrencies. I read a really funny question, and I wish I remember the author of this tweet, but none of this stuff actually could explain the $600 million plus value of Dogecoin. Right. <laughs> There's wow. no real explanation for this. I mean, here's, and... here's the fundamental... <laughs> aspect of it is that you need the the formula the for, the models for valuing these assets need to be predictive and until they're predictive and that might take a decade or two or three before we have formulas that are predictive of of uh, the actual value long term of a of a, comp of a blockchain then we're just guessing and and we're going to get closer we're, these this is improving so much and people are ramping up to this knowledge so quickly like a year ago none of us had any clue and now we're talking with terminology that that you know didn't even exist in in many cases but you know that that's kind of a distraction right like web3 is happening we are creating a revolution on the internet and coinbase had an incredible article that goes into the uh, technical stack of Web3 and um, really how it's coming into play and what its advantages are over the traditional internet. Let's talk about that. Yeah, uh, I feel like they put themselves out there in sharing a vision of uh, what they think is going on now and what they see in the future. And um, it's basically a new technology stack that um, 
they tried basically to emulate like the normal uh, TCP IP stack, right? You have the networking stack, you have um, addresses, you have basically different layers that determine how uh, you route information through the web. Well, the way that they explained the Web3 stack is as follows. The states layer, which is either the Bitcoin blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain, or some other blockchain that has yet to be uh, developed or already has been. The computation layer, the component layer, protocol layer, scalability and transfer layer, user control layer, and application layer. Right, And most people are only actually going to interact or see something in the application layer. But all of the building p uh, blocks that um, are required basically to design a new architecture of websites from the ground up is uh, being put into place. And I do feel like the pieces are starting to be here. And a lot of uh, the discussion of value kind of overlooks the fact that you basically need the infrastructure first before you could wait for the applications or even the blockchains themselves to have provable, demonstrable value in the end to a user. Yeah, I, I, the, I, I look at this from, uh, from a, a different angle. You know, I see this as we're, the way that the internet um, matured allowed all of the value to and the it actually determined the business models that were feasible on the internet so http being a stateless kind of system it, it forced operators to create infrastructure to centralize and to store user state and that led them to try and monetize that user data leading to advertisers because that was the most efficient way to to monetize that user data to billions of people and now with the prospect of blockchains, we have a way to keep the um, the value within the user ecosystem rather than centralizing it to a single operator. Um, and that is a revolutionary idea. The stack that you mentioned is in service to this. And we're seeing these layers build out um, in kind of the order you would expect, right? You don't expect massive consumer applications on the 1998 version of the internet, right? You you expect infrastructure, <laughs> basic payments and things like that. So um, the the tooling that's being developed is moving so rapidly. We, like we just heard Google is now releasing their version of the, the uh, blockchain querying APIs and, and, and libraries. Um, so that's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's becoming and more and clear and clear by the day that Web three, this revolution is happening, um, and it's mass. It's a massive improvement over the status quo. And it's also interesting to um, look at how it's being built and kind of the philosophies uh, that it's taking up because the need for this type of technology is actually more obvious than. Uh, where it derives its value. And it's a lot about user autonomy, having more control over your own personal data, um, not needing to trust a third-party service to protect you or your identity, and basically assuming this uh, 
autonomy that was initially promised with the development of the internet, but hadn't previously been possible with the architecture that was available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone will we'll link the article. It's, it's really good. And I think um, it's helpful for anyone too, who might be a layman to this, if you want to share kind of why blockchain is revolutionary, uh, I think this gives a good introduction. It might be a little bit too technical for some people, but uh, I, I think it is really, really interesting. So we'll link that. So let's talk about, you know, our kind of final topic. Um, it's, kind of, it's a fun one. These personal DAOs. This is a super interesting idea. So tell us about that. So um, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization, and it's um, basically a smart contract that's written into Ethereum that um, handles the interaction of um, different user identities or private keys. And it basically helps a user um, manage more complicated systems. and. Um, Aragon is basically proposing this idea of a personal DAO that allows for a user to um, control their online identity uh, through a um, user-friendly uh, smart contract interface that allows them, for example, to uh, handle permissioning over their identity data. And um, this is something that's pretty powerful uh, and it's really aiming to be like a end use uh, application. And this is the type of thing that I hope to see um, in the final stages of the blockchain development experiment. It's so interesting to me because it's kind of rethinking the usability problems of blockchain. It's trying to create a an interface that allows people to kind of communicate with many different applications uh, without actually installing MetaMask or having having their own uh, communication with the blockchain, you know, with their own machine. And with Aragon doing it is actually very fitting because they are creating the decentralized structure for organizations and allowing them to, you know, have cap tables and user permissions and distribute stocks and things like that. Like, Aragon is perfect for creating this new layer. And the way that I think about it is that, you know, imagine a video game, right? We have World of Warcraft where you have a character, an avatar in the system that you move around and you interact with that on the keyboard. The keyboard and your mouse is your your input method for moving this character and interacting with the world. The personal DAO idea is Aragon implementing that character in the blockchain world for you. And so it will give you a cohesive identity with your EN, you know, with Ethereum name, name service. So you don't have to manage this crazy weird address. It'll give you a way to install apps. This is like your, your characters, you know, look and, and um, armor and things like that. But it also gives you rich permissions, right? So you're linking these apps together. So your Aragon DAO can give your user profile as a permission to a decentralized eBay, for example, or something like that. And you can interact with a, a familiar web application and, and not have to worry about, you know, the, the intricacies of blockchain. Um, I really like the example that they gave, which is a problem that um, I've actually had. And it's basically, how do you have your funds accessible, but not vulnerable? 
And if you have a personal DAO, it's like setting up a multi-signature wallet scheme, but with uh, various devices or applications you already use. Like I already have spending cash that I keep on my MetaMask account in my browser. Um, but at the same time, I would love to have a built-in two-factor authentication system using something like a parity signer that requires my phone as well if I spend more than I would normally. And uh, basically being able to roll out your own um, types of security arrangements in a way that kind of gives you access to funds online without um, making you take more risk than you uh, wanted to is basically the kind of direction that uh, applications need to go into into having people become more comfortable in using crypto um, for larger purchases. And I mean, if the only people that are making large purchases with crypto are um, people who are cryptographers and feel really comfortable with uh, what they are uh, spending because they're really comfortable with their online security practices, then we've lost a, a large uh, group of people. And basically having a uh, smart contract handle your uh, permissions and your level of access and spending is uh, an interesting end application that um, we could envision producing value for lots of people online. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, I love just seeing all the experimentation. This is the foundation where great ideas happen. Um, it's so true. It was true. And after the tech bubble, when it crashed, you had some of the strongest companies come out of that, you know, uh, the rubbish. Is, if that's right. I don't think that's right. Um, uh, and yeah, it's it's just amazing to see this. These even the failures are the stepping stones for great things. In any case, uh, I really had a fun time with you, Lucian. Uh, have a safe rest of your trip. I, I'd like to thank our audience. We'd love to thank our uh, the Bitcoin Podcast Network for publishing this podcast. Thanks so much for, for joining us on your weekly dose of Ether, and we'll catch you next time. Until next time. Thanks. Thanks.